are going to be again John chapter 11 verse 47. Uh, Just to set this up if you uh, didn't see last week or maybe you're joining us online for the first time. uh, Last week we sort of uh, walked through one of the most famous stories in the Bible that I would guess a lot of people who maybe aren't even part of church families would kind of know the story of Lazarus, right? Uh, Lazarus is raised from the dead and so um, if you've been paying attention at all to the gospel of John or really just even Um, the New Testament in general, um, you'll know that the Jewish religious leaders are generally uh, not big fans of Jesus. That's kind of a general statement. Uh, I have just begun to watch the show The Chosen. I don't know if you know about that show, but it's a pretty cool show. I'm only two episodes in, so um, I'm not endorsing it. I'm just letting you know that I'm watching it. But I would encourage you to do that as well and uh, think through some of that stuff uh, as they tell the story in the New Testament. Um, And so you'll notice if you read the New Testament that the Pharisees are generally uh, not big fans of Jesus. Now, there's another group, the Sadducees, which we don't tend to talk about or hear about as much, but they're in there as well. And uh, all of these religious leaders sort of are threatened by Jesus and his person and his work. So they're portrayed, these Pharisees, these Jewish religious leaders are portrayed as kind of resistant to Jesus' ministry, uh, even as his enemies uh, many times. And so... Um, th- what we're looking at today is sort of what, hap- what their reaction to the resurrection of Lazarus is. And we're going to start in verse 47. And I'm just going to, instead of doing one big reading like we did last week, which we'll do from time to time, today I'm just going to read you section by section as we kind of break down what's going on in this text. So remember, the Gospel of John is intended to sort of point you to who Jesus is so that you might believe. That's kind of the theme of the whole book. And so verse 47 and 48 of chapter 11 is where I'm going to start. This is what it says. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, the place thing is pretty important. That's really what they're upset about, and they're almost appealing to uh, this nationalistic sort of, uh, they're going to take away our country as a means to sort of say, but we really, what, what's important to us is our place in that, but we want to kind of rile everybody up with us. And so they see this dilemma of Lazarus coming back from the dead at the hand of Jesus as like an unsolvable problem. They don't know what to do. See, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead on the last day. If you remember back last week, that's something that's said to Jesus. Oh, yeah, I believe that he'll come back on the last day. And then Jesus says, but what about right now, basically? And so the Pharisees also believed in this resurrection of the body, but they didn't know what to do with this moment. They don't know what to do like, wait a minute, what about this? So the Pharisees didn't know where to look for a solution to this problem until a man named Caiaphas shows up and comes and gives them some help. Now, here's what's important. He's a Sadducee. And I know there's some joke about, you remember the difference because they're sad, you see, or something like that. Uh, that's, from my, that's from my church upbringing. That's one of those cl- skeletons in that closet, right? 
So on top of that, or I should say Caiaphas is a Sadducee, and so he actually doesn't believe in the resurrection of the dead at all. That's one of the big differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He doesn't believe in the resurrection of the dead at all, so he is sort of able uh, to, to come and bring them some help. And so um, on top of that, he, as a Sadducee, he is in collaboration with the Romans. So generally speaking... The Sadducees tended to be more, uh, in, our, in our terms, the Sadducees tended to lean left, and the Pharisees tended to lean right. And what you think I mean by left and right in our day and age is what I mean. T- generally, the Pharisees tended to see things more conservatively, and the Sadducees tended to see things more um, progressively. And so they are collaborating with the Romans. And so Caiaphas doesn't want to rock that boat, Right? He doesn't want to sort of kick the bricks out from underneath his position. And so, especially so, some peasant from Galilee, right? If you remember early on in Jesus' ministry, uh, there's a quote where somebody says, what good can even come from Nazareth? That, that, That same attitude is happening here. He doesn't want to be knocked off of his place, and definitely not by somebody from Nazareth, from Galilee. So Caiaphas, he's been the high priest for 16 years at this point. He's highly educated. He's intelligent. He has all the social power. Uh, But as we see here, he's also very cynical and ruthless. And you'll get to know that about Caiaphas as you continue to read in the Gospel of John and and even more so generally in the other Gospels. Um, And so he's kind of the worst of the stereotypes of what we think of as a politician. Like whatever you think of as a politician, thanks, Jimler. Whatever you think of as a politician, like whatever, you know, that kind of like politicians, that's Caiaphas. He's playing the game, but he's doing it sort of in the, uh, he's a ladder climbing Jewish religious leader, so to speak. That's kind of his M.O., so, so look at verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, if you know your Bible, that sentence should make you perk up a little bit, like, wait a minute, does Caiaphas know what's about to happen? So, so what he, here's what he's saying. He's basically like you, like, you bunch of idiots. Like, if you had any intelligence at all, you would see that the answer is really simple. It's better that one person should die unjustly than the whole nation be taken away from us. So he is a cold, calculating, self-sufficient, shrewd, cynical leader. That's what he is. And um, one of the fun things that God does sometimes is he speaks through people like this. And in this moment, the words that Caiaphas speaks are actually a prophecy that he isn't even really aware that he's even speaking. He's actually unwittingly giving a prophecy of Christ. And John tells us that in the next couple verses in verse 51 and 2. And then he tells us why. He did not say this of his own accord, verse 51, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. This is one of those moments, if you know the story of Joseph from the Old Testament, what you have intended for evil, God has meant for good. This is God just showing off his sovereignty. Like, Caiaphas is the high priest. He speaks these words, and as the high priest, he doesn't even know he's prophesying what God is going to do, and he intends it for evil, but God is like, nah, I'm, I'm more sovereign than that. 
Caiaphas unknowingly gives this very clear prophecy of what we call, what we know as the atonement of Jesus for our sins. Meaning, Jesus has paid the debt that we owe for the sins that we have committed and for the sins of the world. John adds in verse 53, so from that day on, they, meaning the the religious leaders in the Jewish world there, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. They don't even know they're playing right into God's hand. So as you read the gospel of John, you have to know, as you continue to read this gospel, you have to know that from this moment until Jesus' death on the cross, there are religious leaders who are actively looking to murder him, right? So Jesus is living from this moment on the rest of his earthly life basically as an outlaw. They're trying to catch him and murder him. The Passover is coming. And so back in the big city of Jerusalem, remember Jesus is at Bethany. Uh, the, the very air is filled with excitement. You might say electricity, right? It's, it's a festival. That There's tense conversations as well. Some are speaking probably in careful tones. Some are talking loud. Maybe, you know, there's some people who like to talk loud so that others will hear them talking loud. And there's others who like to be quiet because something is going on, right? People are wondering, is, is Jesus really going to show up again? Have you seen the guards at the temple? I've, I've never seen a scene like this before. What's going on? This, this whole thing is going crazy. I think he'll come. No, I don't think he's going to take a chance. Well, I guess we'll have to see. And so six days before this Passover, Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. And so the city is filled with religious leaders, right? Imagine if like all of the religious leaders in one nation descended on a city. That's kind of what's happening here. And in just six days from, from where we're reading, Jesus is going to be stretched out on the cross, one man dying for the sins of many, as was prophesied. And that's the setting for the opening verses of chapter 12. And, and what's interesting, we have this little between the story of Lazarus and where we're going to get to, which is basically a celebration dinner for Lazarus coming back from the dead, right? They had a potluck to celebrate. He got resurrected. It's a pretty good thing to celebrate. There's this little section here at the end of John 11 where there's this plot to kill Jesus. And so that's the setup. Verses 1 and 2 from chapter 12 in John. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. I love how John just sticks that back in there. Just so you don't forget, Jesus raised him from the dead. Just don't forget that. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. So Mark, in his gospel, in chapter 14, tells us that the, the house that this is happening in belonged to Simon the leper. So, and then Matthew in Matthew 26 tells us that also the rest of the disciples were there. So this is a pretty big dinner. Like, you know, like this dinner would not be COVID approved during the height of it, right? Because there's like 17 people gathered together. But at this time, it's cool. So the dinner was a celebration. It's a, it's a thank you to Jesus for what he did for Lazarus. I mean, it's incredible what happened, right? And so it's a time of great joy, but don't forget what we just said about the religious leaders plotting to kill Jesus. This is a great moment of bravery from Jesus. Like to show up at this party where a bunch of people are going to know you're there while religious leaders are trying to kill you by using state-approved execution from the Roman Empire is, is pretty gutsy. It's pretty gutsy by Jesus. Verse 2, so they gave a dinner for him there, Martha served. Okay, this is what Martha loved to do. This is who Martha is, remember? 
Martha and Mary, we're going to get to that again as a reminder. So from what the scriptures tell us about her, like this is, I don't know if you know anybody like this, but she's in her element when she's serving like this. Like this is her thing. I think of Mary Walker here. Like when we're having a potluck, like she's in the zone. That's her, that's her place, right? And so Martha here is a guest in Simon the leper's house, but she's serving the dinner. That's why John is telling you Martha serves. She's in charge of the dinner, right? And so she's been probably up the night before getting things ready. So at the, the, the crack of dawn, she can get the, probably the wood-fired oven going, right? All day, you know, if you've been around like a, your, your mom's house at Thanksgiving, that, that aroma is going all day and the dinner's coming up and guests are showing up and, and that's the scene. And, and, and for Martha, nothing's too good for Jesus. We know she loves him and she knows he loves her. And so I have to imagine she's using the best of whatever she can bring. She's using her best recipes. She's uh, bringing, you know, meal and, and course by course out to Jesus and those at the table. And this is bringing joy to her. She, she's doing her thing and everybody is happy. Now, if you know the story of Martha from Luke's gospel, though, you remember that, that there was a moment like this that had also happened that wasn't always quite this happy with Martha. Remember how Mary drifted off another time when Jesus was reclining with them and Mary drifted off as Martha was serving and what did Martha say? Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But Jesus said, Martha, Martha, this is a famous line, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken from her. But this dinner is different. Right? What's different here? Right? We don't see anything about Mary helping. So, so why is Martha seeming to be at peace and Jesus is letting her do her thing? What, what had happened? Well, circumstances uh, hadn't really changed. Martha still just kind of do her thing. But Martha was a different person now. Martha had changed. She had encountered Christ and had changed. And sometimes for us, all it takes is one word from Jesus to change everything and change our perspective. He, he, he never told her uh, that she was supposed to become Mary. That's not what he said to her at that earlier occasion. He didn't say, stop being who I've made you to be and be this other person, and, which is a good thing because if she had, then at this meal, people probably would have been hungry because Martha's serving so she somehow understood that Jesus' insistence at that other meal that Mary had chosen the good portion didn't mean that serving at the table was a bad thing. He's not making a, a, a contrast between the two. She understood that was G, what Jesus was actually saying to her is that it was her internal attitude in that moment that was separating her from him. Her anxious, hurried unhappy attitude that was separating her from him. She knows now that service can be worship if it's done with the right attitude. And so many of us are familiar with Romans 12, right? He starts in verse 1. Paul tells us, present your bodies, your entire self as spiritual worship. This, is, this must be what Martha understood she, she has gotten the same insight as the Apostle Paul will later get when he writes that letter, that true worship can also involve service. This is why at a church we say that we're going to have a worship service. That's one of the ancient words that we get translated as worship into our modern English Bibles. Serving and preparing, and in this case, preparing a meal can definitely be worship. Now, you guys know that I think that eating a meal can for sure be worship, 
But preparing that meal can also be worship. I mean, that, that's how I am. Ask my wife around the holidays, around if I have guests coming over, I get into this mode where I want to cook and I want it to be the best thing I can make. Why? Because I enjoy that and there is a sense in which the same is happening here and the same can, write, can, can happen for us as well. Uh, there, there's uh, a quote that I read this week, which was really interesting, from Catherine Booth, who's the wife of the founder of the Salvation Army. Uh, she said that her son wrote this about her in her biography. Um, Martha knew that when her spirit was right, her service was akin to the dramatic outward worship by Mary. So for Martha, worship looked like service, and we're going to get to what worship looks like for Mary, but sometimes we forget about the way that Martha worshiped. But, but there's always these options before us, right? We can complain about people who aren't doing their job, or we can just do our work and do it in a worshipful, gentle attitude. Th- those are the choices. And so the, the point that sort of transcends all of this is that loving service is always a characteristic of those who've had their hearts really changed by Jesus. Not perfectly all the time. Like, we all grumble from time to time. Some, sometimes, like me, more times than not times. But it's a characteristic of those who've had their hearts touched by Jesus. Now, think about what's happening, who's at this meal, right? This is an amazing a meal. Good friends, we're going to assume good food. I don't have any reason to think Martha was a bad cook because they keep like, having her serve food. But can you imagine the conversation around the table? Like, think about who we just said is there. The disciples are there. They've seen some cool stuff. Uh, particularly John says there's a bunch more stuff he didn't even write in here, so you know he has some good stories. But Simon, the ex-leper, and Lazarus, the ex-dead guy, are at this table. Like, those are some stories to have, right? Like, you can imagine Simon retelling the moment that the healing happened. Like, scabs are falling off and becoming whole, and Lazarus like, I mean, that's a cool story, but my story starts, everything was pitch black. And then I heard Jesus, and here I am. It's amazing. And so as this meal progresses, and, and the, this is one of those meals that you eat slowly. You know those meals where you're kind of just like all together, and you're just kind of eating and, and just hanging out and having a good time. Um, as this meal is progressing and, and this sort of contentment settles in on everybody, you know that moment like at the end of Thanksgiving dinner, and you're like, oh, man, that hit the spot. And then you're like, let's just hang out together. That, that's, that's the moment Mary leaves the room. And so what, what's going to happen here is that Mary is going to uh, perform this, this worship moment, maybe inspired by a moment she saw or heard about earlier in Jesus' ministry. In fact, Luke describes it in the seventh chapter of his gospel, uh, where Jesus is reclining at the table. And, and the way they did that is their feet would be behind them away from the food, right? Makes sense. And so he's at a Pharisee's house, and the Pharisee had not been courteous, had not washed his feet, and so, um, or anointed his head. And so as they're reclining at the table, a, a woman of ill repute comes in, a prostitute walks in, and, and she's clutching this vial, and as she comes to Jesus, she's intending to probably anoint Jesus' head as a moment of worship, but she loses control, begins to weep. She breaks down in front of Jesus, and as her tears fall on his feet, because they weren't washed, they're dusty, it makes a mess, and so um, she begins 
uh, to, to clean his feet with her own hair. And in, in Luke 7.38, it says, She wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And so I, I got to believe Mary's thinking that this, of this moment as she's about to do what she's about to do. She's thinking that moment was so powerful and amazing. I, I want to do something similar for Jesus. I want him to know how much I love him as well. And so th- this is not a- impromptu in terms of she just goes out of the room. and gets, She's been thinking about this kind of moment for a while, I believe. And so she goes out of the room, and according to verse 3, it says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. Now, this is an incredibly expensive, rare type of perfume. Um, I mean, I've seen a lot of perfume and ointment, and a pound of it is a lot, right? She anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And then John adds this, and this is important. Everything in John is important. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, what do we learn from from this moment, from her actions here? First, it's extremely costly. Uh, Judas, in a minute, is going to cynically estimate the cost uh, of that ointment to be about 300 denarii. So if you do the calculations very conservatively, that's at least around the $10,000 neighborhood. Crazy. And so what do we take from that? Well, as I was... Reading this week, one, one commentator just said, whatever we lavish upon Jesus, he will not reject it. And I just thought that was a great line. Whatever you lavish on Jesus, he's not going to reject it. So Mary gives her most treasured possession to Jesus. Now, our treasured possessions, maybe we don't have a $10,000 vial of ointment, right? That's true for Martha. I, I get the feeling that Martha maybe was the kind of lady who didn't care that much about that stuff. Like she has a different personality. She values work, service, preparing, hosting. And so her sacrifice to Jesus is in sweat equity instead of perfume. She's serving, and it's just as valuable to Jesus as Mary's sacrifice. Uh, in, in the book of 2 Samuel, we read this story from King David who wants to buy a field that belongs to a guy named Aruna the Jebusite. When Aruna found out that David wants it, he, uh, being the good you know, sort of person under a king's rule that he was, said, no, king, you take the land, no charge, it's yours, my king. And David responds in 2 Samuel 24, no, I want to buy it for a price. I will not offer to God something that costs me nothing. And so John adds at the end of verse 3 there, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Again, this is not an accidental, like he's not trying to give you this as a historical fact. He's trying to do it for something else. He's telling us that Mary didn't use a tiny little pinch of this. Mary wasn't playing the game of sort of the optics of what it looks like. She didn't do this so that other people would see her doing it. She broke the whole vial and gave it all to Jesus. And so this aroma not only honors Jesus and covers Mary, but as John says, it spreads and fills the entire house. And so honoring Jesus when we give him half our heart or half our money or half our time or half our effort or half of our relationships, whatever it is, it doesn't work. The call is to give Jesus everything. 
And so if your life then isn't becoming a blessing to others in the same way that the rest of that whole household was blessed with Mary's worship and Martha's worship, if your life is not becoming a blessing to others, then then I want to encourage you to do what Mary and Martha do here. Give everything you have in the moment, whatever it looks like. Whatever the Spirit in you is leading you to do, pour it out before Jesus because he won't reject it. Now, everyone at that meal saw these incredible acts of love and worship. Uh, Martha, obviously, they all saw that because they were eating. Mary, they all saw it and appreciated it, everyone except one. John records that Judas saw it as an extravagant waste. Now, he, you have to remember, Judas is, and you'll see this, he's saying this in a very cynical way. Verse 5 of chapter 12, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, Judas sounds impressive when he says that. Like, oh man, good idea, Judas. Man, we should have done that, right? But he's saying that so that you'll hear him say that. Because what we know from verse 6 is that Judas is actually a thief. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Judas was the treasurer of this little band of of people, and he's dipping his hand into the pot. And so he's like, why didn't you donate that and give it to the poor? Because he's thinking, I could have snagged 50% of that for myself. Mary is a selfless, giving believer, willing to give everything to Jesus. Judas is a greedy materialist, wanting to use Jesus for status and gain for himself. To the heart that's never met God, to those who don't yet know Jesus, worship looks kind of wasteful. Like, if you don't know and love Jesus, what we're doing in here on a Sunday morning is like, why? Right? There's a lot, I'm just telling you, there's a lot more things you could do that are pretty fun on a Sunday morning. Brunch, that's a good one, right? But because we know and love Jesus, what seems weird and wasteful to others is so enriching to us and blesses the heart of Jesus and our Father by the power of the Spirit. And so um, Jesus says this in verses 7 and 8, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now many commentators, a lot of different uh, scholars think that because of the devotion of Mary, she's always, we always see her sitting at Jesus' feet. Because of this, she has a more keen insight than the rest. And I just, I just like to point this out. It's interesting to me that a woman here has a much more clear understanding of what's going on than, than the rest of the men disciples who are with her. Right? I, this seems convincing to me. Uh, one commentator, G. Campbell Morgan, says this thought, and I just thought he said it beautifully. He said, I would rather be a successor to Mary of Bethany than to the whole crowd of the apostles. I would rather be known for sitting at the feet of Jesus than for being able to speak with power or heal or do whatever. Let's keep going. Verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Lazarus had become like the star witness for Jesus. Like, how are you going to refute Lazarus? People saw him dead, and then they saw him not dead. 
four days later out of the tomb. Here's what's amazing about this. As we read the Gospels, you, you don't find anything outstanding about Lazarus. Like Jesus doesn't save him because he's so gifted. He doesn't save him because he has a huge following on Twitter and I need him to spread the gospel. No, you don't see any of that. Lazarus doesn't, uh, based, based on what we can read in the gospels, it's not like he has some connection to the Roman Empire and we're gonna use that to spread and we don't see anything outstanding about Lazarus. It's like he's never said anything or did anything that was even worth recording in the gospels. Why? Because the answer is not in what Lazarus does for Jesus, but it's in what Jesus does for Lazarus. And that's the same for you and I. Even, even though we might not possess you know, some great ability or some great wealth with which God can do his thing, maybe we have nothing to bring to Jesus. And yet, if we're dead in our sins, like Lazarus was dead in the grave, and we hear a voice over us that says, get up, come out. And if we've risen to newness of life in Jesus by the power of his spirit, Jesus is saying over our lives, unbind him or her and let them go. That you're no longer bound by the things that led to that spiritual death. So now that we're free, we our lives become an unanswerable argument for Jesus. Every one of our lives should be so changed that the only way it can be accounted for is the power of Jesus. If we have new life, if we have the Holy Spirit and there's change happening in us, and I'm not saying radical, like you're completely different from one day to the next, although I know testimonies like that, but that over time, your relationships, people notice, man, you're just not as like angry as you used to be, and, and you, you're not as controlling as you used to be, and you're not as worried as you used to be, and whatever all those, like what's going on in you, and you become this unanswerable argument for Jesus, be, not because of what you've done for him, but because of what he's done for you, that's your testimony. Like, I, I, don't, I don't have anything to offer you, but what I can tell you is what Jesus has done for me. He made me go from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive, and now all I want to do is tell people about it. And so, uh, just to, to land the plane, what we see in today's text is a picture of new life in Jesus, sort of three perspectives on new life in Jesus. Martha, she's now serving with all she had, just like she was before Jesus had to speak that word to her, but she's doing it now out of a different place. Mary is pouring out all she has for Jesus in this moment of compassionate, selfless, giving worship. And Lazarus, I mean, he's he is the picture of new life in Christ, right? This is a, a really nice, like, complete picture and a, and a microcosm of what happens when Jesus touches lives, both our lives and the lives of people around us. So, so for those of us who know and who love Jesus, regardless of whatever else has defined our lives, Jesus has called you out and he has instructed the church, the rest of us watching, to unbind you and to let you go and to be free in who he's saying you are now. And so there's one singular reality that continues to define our lives. No matter who you are as a Christian, no matter what kind of background you have or what church you belong to or what stream of the Christian faith or historic practice you come from, there's one thing underneath all of that, and that is that Christ has done something for me. He has changed me. That's what this whole thing is about. That, that's the banner over our lives as a church family, isn't it? That Christ has changed us and we're here. 
And so if we ponder what it really is at the bottom of all that it means to be a church family together, it's the same reality that we see playing out in the text. Jesus just changes lives. He brings people back from the dead. He changes non-worshippers into worshipers, and he lets other people live into their identity as a worshiper of him, knowing who they are now and not having to grasp for it from their accomplishments. Let me pray. Jesus, I pray that uh, this little kind of in-between story wouldn't be lost to us. Uh, it's, it's in our Bible for a reason, and you have something for us in it. I just pray that as we look at the lives of, of Lazarus and Martha and Mary and Jesus and the disciples, that we would um, see parts of ourselves in this story. We know that this is uh, the intention of John as he writes the gospel, that we would put ourselves in this story, that we would believe, and in believing we would have life with you forever. I just ask that you would open our eyes to see what you want us to see out of this kind of text, that if we have questions, that we would ask those questions, and we would struggle through uh, the, the section of the Bible that we've been in, and, and ask your Holy Spirit to illuminate it to us so we can understand what you want us to understand, feel what you want us to feel, believe what you want us to believe so that we might be whole disciples who are coming after you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to invite you to stand. And uh, for those of you who are uh, still watching online, we want to say thank you for watching, and uh, we just would love to connect with you. Uh, you can do that at Lansdowne.church. I do want to remind all of us in the room, I know not all of us are on it, but we do have an app for our church. If you have a smartphone, you can go to Church Center uh, app, the Church Center app, and you can put in our church name, and it should find it. And then we have a prayer uh, group that we're in. As an, there's an open prayer group, so if you have prayer requests... Uh, obviously, you can always just come tell me, but that is a great place to just kind of put that, and then we have an ability to kind of tell one another, hey, I'm praying for you, uh, and, and that's been a good thing. And so just want to invite you to think about doing that. If you need help with that, just come find me, and I will uh, get your phone going for you. But uh, for those of you watching online, we're going to say goodbye, and then for those of us in the room, we're going to come back in a minute or two and take uh, the Lord's Supper together. But as we leave sort of our official public service. Let me just speak this blessing over us. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. And the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen.